Please be seated. Good evening to you. The book of Nahum, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, it's between Micah and Habakkuk. Not a lot of help sometimes, and uh, as we get to these smaller books, as a reminder, the minor prophets are called minor prophets, not so much because they're uh, not as significant as the major prophets, but just simply because uh, they're so much shorter than uh, the major prophets. And so uh, that, they, there's a bunch of them, and it can be hard to find them sometime. Um, as we come here, uh, uh, verse 1, chapter 1, the burden against Nineveh, uh, uh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. So all we know about Nahum historically and all that's really revealed to us in the letter um, is his name and, uh, and also the fact that he came from a city called Elkosh, which we uh, do not know presently uh, in any kind of archaeological digs to have not discovered the location of that uh, city uh, yet. The prophecy that he delivers here is referred to as a burden and the sense that it is a uh, the message that he's going to deliver to the Assyrians and then in a very encouraging way to the southern kingdom of Judah but to the Assyrians it's a really really heavy uh, a message of heavy judgment upon uh, the Assyrians and so he calls it uh, a burden an Old Testament term that's used for uh, that kind of a, of a revelation we're told plainly that, uh, uh, that uh, Nahum uh, received this book in the form, his prophecy in the form uh, of a, uh, a vision. He saw in his mind all of the scenes that he describes here uh, in the book. It is interesting among the prophets, and uh, uh, minor and major prophets, is that Nahum is the only one whose prophecies, uh, take, uh, prophecy takes the form of a book. Apparently, later they were put in book form, but apparently, uh, unlike uh, Jeremiah or unlike Isaiah, he didn't go out and preach this message uh, uh, to, to the Assyrians or to the world in the way that we would expect a prophet to do, but he recorded it and then made it known uh, to that population and that generation and, and to us as well uh, in, in that form. So his prophecy is meant uh, to be uh, read. We notice also that it is a burden that is against Nineveh, which was at the time the capital city of, uh, of Assyria. And so uh, it is a message of judgment against Nineveh, against Assyria, uh, but it is written really to them uh, kind of primarily, but then in a very real way, secondarily. It's a, it's a message of judgment to uh, Nineveh and the Assyrians, who at this particular time were holding captive as a part of their empire all of the population of the northern kingdom of Israel. So it is a rebuke to the Assyrians, but it is very much and would have been read as a tremendous encouragement to the southern kingdom of Judah that Assyria will not uh, conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, that their reign will come to an end as a world-ruling empire, and so it accomplishes uh, uh, both of those things, that ultimately they will be destroyed, which would be a necessary step in uh, the children of Israel uh, returning to their land from their Assyrian captivity and then ultimately their Babylonian uh, captivity. The background here that helps us to understand this uh, a little bit better and the timing of it is that a, a sort of judgment hung over uh, the, uh, the Assyrian Empire and the capital uh, Nineveh in particular. Uh, at the time of Jonah, as we just studied him uh, recently, and God was going to judge them for their wickedness, he sent a very reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah to deliver a message, and Jonah was uh, happy in one sense to deliver the message, but he knew God would 
was a softy toward repentant people. So he walks all the way through the entire capital saying 40 days and then comes destruction. No message of hope, no message of, uh, of uh, uh, even the possibility of salvation or turning the judgment back. And then wonder of wonders. And uh, very much disappointing uh, to Jonah, uh, the city of Nineveh heeded the message uh, they saw their wickedness, they turned from their wickedness, they repented of it, and God then repented of the judgment that He was going to bring uh, upon them. And, and that was what God wanted to do all along. He doesn't uh, take joy in, in uh, 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 that the wicked would perish, but that all would come to repentance. All of that had happened a hundred years before uh, Nahum. And so in the meantime, that revival under <clears throat> Jonah uh, obviously faded. Uh, Nineveh and the Assyrians returned back to their former uh, practices and, and all of, uh, of the evil and cruel life that they were living. And so now through Nahum, the Lord warns them of the judgment that was to have come upon them at, by the hands of uh, the Babylonians. Now remember, when we read... Uh, about the Babylonians conquering the Assyrians, that is a historical fact for us. And I never want us to, to lose this all related to it. So it's so easy to read these books, these historical books, to read them merely as history. But at the time in which they were written, they were completely prophetic. Uh, Babylon was a nothing at this time. Uh, in, in the sense of becoming a world-ruling empire, it looked like Assyria would reign for a thousand years in terms of their, their kingdom. And yet, uh, God comes in and speaks in a way that nobody could have believed was possible, that the Assyrians would be conquered by the Babylonians. And, and so, uh, so it happened. And, and, uh, and uh, what was entirely prophetic came uh, to be uh, uh, historical, as is the case with all prophecies um, in, in the Bible. Uh, Nahum reveals God to uh, be uh, holy. He reveals Him to be sovereign, uh, the God who enforces um, international uh, justice, uh, especially when an empire or a nation becomes a threat to the world itself, or even more especially when a nation or a kingdom becomes a threat to his plans and to his purposes uh, for his people. And so uh, today, and in, in kind of uh, some of the softness of culturally of the United States of America, people don't like to hear about a, a God of judgment, a God that will judge wickedness. Even Christians don't want to. But the condition of the world be, can become so bad, uh, uh, wickedness and evil can become so systemic that uh, I don't care who we are, the problems so beyond man's ability to solve them that the greatest skeptic will find themselves begging God to bring an end to the wickedness or the, and the unrighteousness and the idolatry and the cruelty and the sin of a nation or of a world. This is just a game that we play in our minds because we are in a, remain still in a wonderful, wonderful bubble by virtue of the power of the United States of America. But there are Christians in entire nations around the world for whom they have no hope uh, of ever coming out from under the persecution and the corruption of what they're under unless God rises up and brings it to an end. And that is not bad news to the world, but that that is, that is uh, 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 good, uh, good news. And so as things grow worse and worse, as, as the approach of Jesus' return draws ever near uh, this realization is going to dawn on more and more uh, people. And so God reigns. He has control of human history. Uh, uh, no matter what era it is, we get a glimpse at this moment in time having to do with the Assyrians and, uh, and, and uh, Judah. He begins by describing the nature of God, the character of God, 
to them, God is jealous. And the idea is not the kind of carnal jealousy that can uh, mark us sometimes, but this is a holy jealousy. The world belongs to God. All of it belongs to God. Uh, The Jewish people belong to God. And uh, here's the Assyrian coming in, the Assyrian Empire, and acting as if the God of the Bible doesn't exist. Acting as if they're in control of human history, treating uh, the children of Israel uh, abysmally. And so, uh, and so this uh, causes a, a holy jealousy to rise up within God. When any time any human being or even nation rises up and attempts to compete with Him in His purposes uh, in the world, and in His purposes for His people. And the Lord avenges, uh, and the Lord avenges, uh, again as it's repeated there. And uh, the avenging, and He is a God who avenges, He is a God who takes uh, revenge. And, and of course, av- avenging something uh, of necessity means something has to have been done to someone in order to them to avenge that action. And the Assyrians were poking God in the eye every single day. He had raised them up in His almightiness and in His purposes to chasten the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. That is what He had uh, called them to do. But he had not called them to treat the Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel as badly as they did. And he did not call on them to attempt to uh, take and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And that's what they attempted to do. And so they have overstepped their bounds uh, in a way that is an affront to God. It competes with God. Uh, it is uh, the actions of someone uh, who thinks they are, no, uh, are God or that they can compete with God, and God will avenge that. He will always put uh, that nation or that person in their place. And He is uh, furious. And the, uh, the word in the original language, it means to be hot. In other words, you, you don't... You don't want to meet God like this, because He can be hot uh, in in His uh, in His uh, anger and in in His furiousness, and so He's very upset uh, with uh, the Assyrians, and uh, and so He's going to bring His judgment uh, against them, and the Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserves wrath for uh, His enemies, and so He's going to uh, judge them uh, when it talks about the fact that then it talks about verse 3 the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and he will not at all acquit the wicked when it says that he is slow uh, to anger it means that he is slow uh, to judge so when God's God is so patient all we have to do is look at our own lives I mean could he hammer you every day he could hammer me every day He's very, very patient. He's firm. He's righteous. He doesn't wink at my nonsense, uh, but he's very, very gracious to allow us to continue to grow into the Christian life. And so by the time he has to bend us over his knee and and swat us, sometimes in public, uh, we know that he's been uh, he's been pushed to this this kind of a place. And so it is uh, in terms of uh, the world. His judgment is never sudden, it's never fickle, it it is very, very well-informed, very measured, uh, very appropriate. And so you remember, he's already waited a hundred years before judging uh, the Assyrian Empire. And he would have waited however much longer if they hadn't repented of the repentance that brought the revival into their uh, midst. And though he is slow uh, to, to judge, he won't, let, uh, he won't let the wickedness go uh, unpunished. And so he says there uh, at the end of verse 3, and will not at all uh, acquit the wicked. So it, 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 when nobody's getting away with anything, 
in this world. It's just a matter of on what kind of timing is God going to take care of whatever it is that's going on. But uh, the idea of somebody's getting away with something or some nation is getting away with something, uh, nobody's getting away with anything, not at uh, all. Now, the problem I have is that I'm a, God, God loves my counsel. Uh, he's just on the edge of his seat for when I can tell him, you know, what to do in the, the affairs of the world and all. Um, and so I always look at these things so one-dimensionally and it looks like now is always the best time and the right time to do this and anybody could see what needs to be done and then usually after we wait a little while and he knocks out what it is that I think needs to be knocked out uh, first and foremost he knocks out 20 things all at once and that's one of the dominoes that goes down he's always dealing with such a, a, a larger picture than than we are. And it's enough for us to know uh, that He is patient in His judgment and nobody's getting away uh, with anything, however uh, much it may uh, appear that they are. And then Nahum describes the, the power and the authority of God, the one who is going to judge the Assyrians. And uh, he describes them uh, there in... Uh, uh, halfway through verse 3, and the Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm. I don't know the last time uh, you woke up in the morning and you produced a whirlwind. Uh, Or you directed a storm. Well, if we were in control of storms, we'd have had some rain in January, right? So we didn't have any rain in, in January. And so here he's talking about how God has all of nature at his disposal in terms of his judgment. And he has all of nature at his disposal speaking about how powerful he is. And so he has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. All I can do is look at them from the other side. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up uh, the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills. So you see the clouds, the sea, the whirlwind, the storm, the rivers, the mountains, the hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. All to make this point, who can stand uh, before his indignation? And the obvious uh, answer and light of his authority over uh, all of, of, of creation and nature at his disposal is that no one can. And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Again, the same answer, no one can. His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down uh, by him. And then in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust him, uh, in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place and darkness will pursue his enemies. And so, uh, verses 7 and 8 are so important to remind us that in God's judgment, there is always a distinction. There is a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, the godly and uh, the wicked. And so there is always is the case uh, uh, that there is a godly remnant uh, that exists in any kind of judgment that God brings uh, 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 upon uh, uh, mankind. And here is the encouragement that when judgment comes, God knows how to discriminate between the two groups. There can be things can get so wicked within a nation and so wicked within the world, and wickedness can become such a prevailing uh, characteristic of the world that the righteous can begin to think it doesn't pay to be righteous. It doesn't make any difference to be righteous. Nobody notices it. Everybody just takes advantage uh, of it, but it does make a difference because God notices it, and when He judges, He will differentiate between the wicked 
uh, and uh, the, the righteous. And so the fact that he knows the righteous, even in the midst of his judgment, is a great comfort to, uh, to the righteous when uh, destruction and when his judgment uh, falls. And then uh, here is uh, uh, God through Nahum announcing his verdict to uh, Nineveh directly and then also to uh, Judah as well. What do you conspire against the Lord? He speaks to Nineveh, Assyria. He will make an utter uh, end of it. And so God says He's going to make a, a complete end of their conspiracies uh, against Him. These conspiracies were in the form of uh, plots that they were making against uh, Judah uh, through Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria at this time. Remember, he had failed to uh, conquer uh, Jerusalem, as we're told in the historical books, as we're also told in uh, Isaiah, he had endeavored in uh, uh, eating up, so to speak, and lapping up the northern kingdom of Israel and conquered them because God gave them the freedom and the ability to conquer them as an instrument of his chastening. And they thought to themselves, We're in the neighborhood, let's take Judah and let's take Jerusalem. And God did not raise them up uh, to take Jerusalem and to take Judah, but they went in anyway, and they, they went beyond the boundaries of what God had called them to. And you might remember as they had laid siege to the city of Jerusalem by angelic means, uh, a single angel is dispatched in a single night, and that angel kills 185,000 frontline Assyrian troops that were laying siege to Jerusalem. And uh, Sennacherib realized immediately uh, that he's in over his head related to this. I mean, just the supernatural means of all of it. And then uh, he, uh, he leaves. He, he, he uh, uh, retreats back into uh, Assyria. And so apparently... Even though that had happened to them, they're continuing to try and make plans to go back to that Jerusalem there in Judah and get all the loot that is, uh, is found there. And God informs him uh, that affliction will not rise up a second time. You won't be around long enough uh, to uh, uh, try that one more time in coming against my people in Jerusalem uh, against, my, against my will as you endeavor to do the first time. And then he describes uh, them and God's judgment upon them that will bring an end to their power and ability to do such a thing. For while, uh, while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. And so... Uh, um, a drunk person, if you're going to fight someone, you'd rather fight them drunk. I mean really drunk. And, uh, and so the, the, he, God is saying here that they're, they're going to be like drunken like drunkards, uh, tangled like thorns. They're going to be so wrapped up upon each other. They're going to be tangled together. They're not going to be able to defend themselves against his judgment uh, any more than... Uh, then uh, fully dried, stubble fully dried can withstand uh, fire. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, uh, a wicked counselor. And so again, uh, these, uh, these uh, plans that were still going on with Sennacherib and, and probably speaking of the Assyrian kings uh, in general to, to mount an invasion in, into Judah and the Lord says, uh, you're still trying to hatch these plots and you have no, no uh, success, hope of success in doing that. Thus says the Lord, uh, though they are safe here now, and he talks about, uh, this is a message to, Is uh, to Judah uh, of his ultimate deliverance of them from the Assyrian uh, affliction and bondage. He says of Assyria, though they are safe and likewise many, they look like nobody can defeat them. And yet, in this manner, they shall be cut down. When he passes through, 
And though I have afflicted you, he says to Judah, I will afflict you no more, for now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. He will bring an end to that Assyrian, uh, that Assyrian empire and, uh, and, uh, and Assyria uh, would, would no longer uh, afflict them. There's a sense that there would be nothing uh, to, uh, left with which to try and afflict them uh, given the, the severity of, of the judgment. And the Lord has given a command concerning you, your name, speaking of these kings, and the final king, your name shall be perpetuated uh, no longer. And the sense is, is that this king will not have any descendants uh, to the throne because there won't be a throne. There won't be an Assyrian empire. He's going to bring an end to uh, that entire uh, uh, lineage. And out of the house of your gods, he speaks to the king, uh, out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. And so God says, and, and of course Assyria was, worshipped just about anything and everything. They had so, many, so much idolatry going on. And God said, I'm going to cut off even the graven images and the carved images that are found in your temple. In other words, your gods not only won't be able to protect you against me, uh, uh, but uh, they won't even be able to protect themselves. And I will dig your grave, for you are vile. And the idea is, you're going to die, and you're not going to have a royal uh, funeral. Uh, your body's going to get thrown in some kind of a muddy ditch, just like all of the other, uh, uh, other uh, bodies, despite your position. And then he, he describes the joy with which uh, the, the fall of the Assyrian Empire at the hands of the Babylonian, uh, the, the, the joy with which that news would be received in the southern kingdom of Judah. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. And so you see this uh, messenger running from uh, the area of Assyria with the news. And he's running with the news that the Assyrians have fallen to the Babylonians, this great uh, menace to the world and to the Jewish uh, people. And, uh, and uh, uh, he, his feet will be loved for uh, bringing the, the feet that caused that, that beautiful of a message to be brought to the Jewish people. And, O oh, Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows. You're not going to be under any threat in terms of your worship by the Assyrians any longer, for the wicked one shall no, uh, shall no more pass through you. He is utterly uh, cut off. Now, uh, some of us might recognize that Paul takes and uses this particular imagery in this passage uh, in Romans chapter 11 uh, to, or Romans chapter 10, verse 15, to describe uh, the news coming to mankind, the eagerness we're to possess in, in sharing as Christians in sharing the good news of the gospel. If, if someone would run such a long distance and, and with all of their might and with all the enthusiasm to carry the good news of the fall of the Assyrians, how much more, Paul says, should a Christian carry the news of salvation, uh, the news of uh, the death of death, uh, the conquering of sin, uh, the conquering uh, of the flesh, and, and, uh, and, and, and the conquering of hell. And so uh, 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 the, the superior message that has been given uh, to us to carry and the excitement of being able to carry uh, that, that news. And then God, as He comes into chapter 2 here, he details his, uh, the description of his, his judgment upon Nineveh. He who scatters has come up before your face, speaking of the Babylonians coming to Nineveh. Man the fort, watch the road. God gives them plenty of warning. Uh, he's, go ahead and do everything you can to get ready for it. Strengthen your flanks. Fortify your power uh, uh, mightily. And, uh, and God warns them, do everything that you can to prepare for the judgment that's coming and knowing that all of it would be futile. 
For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. And so uh, God speaks of the fact that the Assyrians will be judged, and, uh, but Israel's going to be uh, restored. And Nineveh had taken Israel again into captivity, had badly ravaged uh, Judah. Now it was their turn to be ravaged. And here are, uh, is the description of Nineveh's attackers, uh, the Babylonians as they come in militarily, and it is a tremendous description of a fabulously equipped uh, army and, uh, and disciplined and uh, 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 bloodthirsty too. The shields of his mighty men this invading Babylonians, are made red. It might be blood on the shields from uh, fighting with the Assyrians to conquer them, and, uh, or it might be they just dyed their shields red for that kind of psychological impact. Uh, the valiant men, her so soldiers, are in scarlet. The Babylonians, that red was the color for their military. The chariots come with flaming torches. Well, uh, uh, I don't ever want to see a chariot out in the open under any circumstances, uh, or a torch. And, uh, but you put those two together at night in a military campaign in the ancient world, that was a bad combination. And so they come in the day of his preparation. The, and the spears are brand, uh, brandished. The chariots rage. Isn't that an interesting language? The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads that made up the interior uh, streets within the walls of the city. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. So here is the image of a Babylonian military that has come into the city and they are virtually unresisted. They have taken over the city and, uh, and, and uh, have free reign. There's the Babylonians that uh, on their chariots, historically we know that they would uh, put those kind of uh, great kind of swords out on the sides of the wheels that would kind of go around. Those of you who have seen Ben-Hur, you know the kind of damage that it can do to another chariot. But, but as you would just fly through a crowd with a chariot and with that weaponry, even on the chariot, uh, the horse would just plow right in, people would go to either sides, and they would just tumble then into what was an ancient buzzsaw. And uh, you could lose a limb, you're certainly going to be incapacitated uh, for battle. And so it just speaks of the horror uh, that is going to come uh, upon the nation that had produced the same horror and so, uh, so many other nations in their uh, conquest uh, uh, of them as the Assyrians did. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their uh, walk and they make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. And so the king hears about this, sees the army coming, the military against him. He tells his nobles, go to the wall, strengthen them, get our defense there. And the gates of the rivers are open, the palace is dissolved, it is decreed, and she shall be led away captive, she shall be brought up, and her maidservants will lead her with the voice of a dove, uh, and, and it's a sound of, uh, the voice of a dove is a sound of lament, and, and they would beat their breasts knowing that they were now going to go into uh, captivity. And so uh, the Babylonians uh, used the uh, Nineveh's uh, extensive waterways in order to invade. Uh, there is uh, some speculation by historians related to uh, just how that happened, whether they opened up the floodgates and, and they flooded the city, causing the foundations to, to crumble, as verse 6 kind of uh, suggests, or whether they drained the water, uh, waterways and, and then entered in through the exposed walls. We don't really know. Historically, there's only, really only one kind of mention related to that, and it's a Greek source uh, that talks about the fact that as Nineveh was built, on the east bank of, of the Tigris River and the, the river Husser uh, ran through the city and according to that Greek story it was a sudden rise of this river that caused a stretch of the wall to collapse 
and then allowed the Babylonians to enter in freely uh, into uh, the city. And then the looting is described uh, of, of, of the city as in verse 8, though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, uh, now they fl uh, flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. The people fleeing out of Nineveh at this particular point, uh, they're like a stream of water. There's no stopping them. The panic to get uh, out. Take spoil, it's declared to the Babylonians. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable uh, prize. The, ba uh, the Assyrians had conquered nations and looted nations of their wealth for 300 years. It, it, it would be impossible to imagine uh, just staggering the amount of wealth that was in these storehouses. The wealth of the world uh, was there. And then now all of it is going to be uh, lost in an instant, in an hour, uh, to the Babylonians. She is empty, desolate, and waste. Uh, the heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is on every side. And all of their faces are drained uh, of, of color. Uh, and then Nineveh's uh, 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 previous domination of, of her foes is, is described in verse 11. Uh, where is the dwelling of the lions? And you might remember that lions were a symbol of, of the Assyrian Empire. Well, where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked and the lioness and the cu lion's cub and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough uh, food for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with uh, flesh. And so uh, here for so many years, Nineveh and Assyria had captured the wealth uh, of the world, uh, being brought into the city, and it would be, uh, all of that would be now devoured by someone else. And then the Lord declared to Nineveh that he was against them. He would bring their uh, dominion to an end. Behold, I am against you. So it's not just the Babylonians. Now, the Babylonians were an instrument of God's uh, judgment and chastening. I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young uh, lions. I, cut, uh, I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall be heard uh, no more. And so the lion uh, would be destroyed in his den, and then the lion's den would be uh, destroyed as well. In chapter 3, God gives the reasons for his judgment upon Nineveh, he, he uh, describes her sins. Woe to the bloody city. And uh, we remember that the, uh, the Assyrians were very, very ruthless. They used the um, kind of propaganda or uh, influence of fear in order to conquer the world, cutting people's heads off in mass, skinning them alive, these kind of things. It wasn't unusual to take an entire captive population and cut e every single person's nose off or their ears off just to do it and to put fear in, in other populations. Well, one of the problems is if you conquer or you gain by such ruthless, violent means, that's not something you turn on and turn off as a culture. Uh, that's not something you say, oh, we just do that out there, but then when we deal uh, in, in the home front within our own country, uh, we have a different attitude towards people. No, if you're willing to do that to human beings, rather than treating prisoners of war in a humane way, then you're going to carry a, a very poor estimate of the value of life than into your culture. And so her culture became uh, very, very uh, 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 marked by violence and bloodshed within the city itself. And it's full of lies and robbery. The victim never departs day and night. Uh, this kind of violence and lying and robbery was going on. A and then 
again, a glimpse of the judgment that will come upon her is given to us in verses 2 and 3. The noise of a whip and the noise of, a rattling, of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of uh, clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses, and they stumble over the corpses. And then he continues now with his uh, indictment of them related to their sin because of the multitude of harlotries uh, of the seductive harlot, uh, the, the judgment would come upon her. He, God speaks of her as, as a harlot and speaking about the seductive nature with which a, a harlot will work. And so they were very seductive. Uh, every nation in the world uh, is exerting an influence upon its own population and also in the world. And when you are the most powerful nation in the world, a, ruler, a world ruling empire, then people, in order to curry your favor, will take on your characteristics, your, uh, your morality. And, and so that's what was happening. And it was a, a corruption upon uh, all of the, the other nations that were around them. He then uh, condemns them, uh, uh, her as the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. And so uh, she was a, uh, Nineveh was a, sense, a center for sorceries, for witchcraft, for spells. And uh, don't think about, uh, don't think of them as walking around with uh, a rabbit's foot in their right front pocket. We're talking about a very, very a deeply demonic uh, uh, empire in terms of what they worshipped and what it is that they, uh, they uh, practiced. And behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face and I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. He says, I'm going to air your dirty laundry. I'm going to let the whole world see what you are in, in private, what you think will always be kept private in terms of their, their uh, uh, immorality and, and uh, their wickedness, their idolatry and, and uh, uh, violence and so forth. I will cast abominable filth upon you and make you uh, vile. And so he, he says, I'm going to expose you uh, not for how you present yourself, but I'm going to let the whole world see uh, what a vile uh, group you are and a vile influence in, in uh, uh, the world and make you a spectacle and it shall come to pass that uh, all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters? For you, and so uh, all of uh, all of these uh, peoples that she had kept kind of under her thumb, by virtue of fear and power. Once that fear and power is gone, uh, everybody then uh, flees from uh, from her. Any kind of an allegiance to her at all, she's left alone. And then that interesting two questions at the end of verse seven there, and who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? In other words. When Assyria fell and, and, the, and Nineveh fell, nobody mourned. They said, we're trying to find some mourners for your death, for your funeral, but we can't find any. Now, no nation in the world uh, is operating with any kind of wisdom that does not take into consideration how the rest of the world would respond to their demise or their defeat or dropping down from their position. And if you're in a place where you can look at it and say, if we were to fall and the whole world would be excited, then something's wrong with the policies of, of that that nation and everything was wrong with the policies of, of Nineveh, and so they, as you attend funerals and and they uh, they say the old saying is is to you know live so as to be missed, 
and as good counsel. And uh, Nineveh did not live so as to be missed because she never thought she would die and, and never thought this assessment would, would take place. You imagine going to a funeral for an individual. It's true of an individual as much as it is of a nation. And uh, uh, going to a, a, a funeral service and uh, everybody is celebrating the death of the person. I mean, there's not a, there's not a, a, a wet eye in the, in the entire room. Everybody's thrilled that the person is gone. I remember one time I, I prefer, uh, officiated at a memorial and I was doing it as a favor. I didn't know the person very well, uh, but the wife asked and, and so forth and so forth. And so I said, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and uh, do that. An opportunity to share the gospel. And so a guy comes up to me before the, the, the funeral ser- service starts and, and he asked me, are you the pastor you're going to be delivering the message? I said, yes, I am. He said, don't you say one good thing about that guy. Because if you say anything good about him, everyone in this room will know you're a liar. And they won't listen to anything else you have to say. And, and, and that was the word that he gave me. Well, no mourning at all within the room. And, and, uh, and so it is with a nation, so it is with an individual. We would like to have our deaths be mourned, and especially by the righteous. They couldn't find mourners among even their closest friends once they were destroyed. Are you better than no Amon that is situated by the river, that had waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength or her allies, and it was boundless, the size of, uh, of the city called Thebes. Thebes was a city uh, uh, in Egypt, and God had used the, the Assyrians to chasten Egypt, uh, to go into Egypt, to defeat them, and then also to conquer the city of Thebes. And, uh, and they had uh, a city that looked like nobody could ever uh, uh, defeat it and, and overthrow it, and yet the Assyrians had done it because God had called them to do that. And he reminds them of their own, own history. Uh, it, it, thieves look like it could not be overthrown because of its wealth and its military. You remember when you defeated them? And, and so from your own history, you know what can happen to people uh, like you in your pride and, and in your wickedness. And so Put and Lubum were your helpers, uh, as speaking to Thebes, and yet she was carried away. Uh, she went into captivity. Her young children were, also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street, and they cast lots for her honorable men, and all of her great men were bound in chains. And you also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will uh, seek refuge from the enemy." What you did to Thebes, and that would have been something that would have been uh, well known in their history, he said, that is coming to uh, a theater near you. That is coming to your capital as well. All your strongholds, what you think are, are the, your, all of your strong points for why you can't be uh, conquered, they are fig trees with ripened figs. Uh, so ripe that if they're shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Now, that's a ripe fig. One that you just shake the branch and it just drops right into your mouth. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a fig that's ripe and it's overripe. And God's saying the Assyrians were ripe and overripe for the judgment that was coming upon them. And surely your people uh, in your midst uh, are women in terms of uh, the ability to d- uh, defend. They are the fairer sex, the weaker sex. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the ba- uh, bars of your uh, gates. And then God tells them, make all of the elaborate uh, preparations you want uh, for this. They're, they're not going to do any good. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. And uh, go into the clay and uh, tread the mortar, make strong the uh, brick kiln. 
and, uh, and then there the fire will devour you, the sword will cut you off, I will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locust. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts who have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. So they were a great, obviously a great commercial center in the ancient world. And wherever you've got a commercial center, uh, you have merchants. And merchants go where you can make money. And Nineveh was the place to make money. And, uh, but what they didn't realize is once that they became uh, morally something that God would have to judge, that the merchants wouldn't remain a loyal part of their population. The merchants would just fly away from Nineveh and go to the next city that's arising in order to make money. And, and, uh, and, and so that's exactly what they would do. And your commanders, your military commanders are like swarming locusts. Your generals like great grasshoppers which camp on the hedges on a cold day. And uh, so they're cold-blooded. They kind of will just sit right there until uh, the sun comes out and warms them up so they can start to move around. And so they camp on the uh, hedges in the cold day. And when the sun rises, uh, they get warmed up and they flee away. And, and the place where they are is not known. Your military commanders are going to desert you in mass. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one uh, gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear new news of you will clap their hands over you, for, uh, 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 for upon whom has not your wickedness passed uh, continually. They oppressed the entire world and influence for ungodliness uh, to, uh, to the whole uh, world, and they would not be missed in their current condition um, at, at that uh, time. Let me just give us a, a couple things to think about in terms of practical lessons from the book of Nahum. It, it, it teaches us that God is in control of human history. All of these books do. But it reminds us that God will rise up and judge anything in the world that becomes a threat to His people and His plans through His people. And the Assyrians had become that, and uh, so he, he uh, judged them. It certainly reminds us that righteousness exalts a nation, and sin is a reproach to uh, any, uh, any people. And, and so the, the importance of that, when God looks to determine the health of a nation, what is the, what is the actual strength of a nation? He doesn't look at it in terms of its uh, GDP. He doesn't look at it in terms of its military. He looks below that, what those things depend upon, and that is the righteousness of its citizenry and of its, its leaders. That's what makes a country strong. That's what makes a country uh, stable. Uh, nothing, uh, nothing else. I remember it was a few pres presidents ago, and I won't name the president, but um, he's actually a Christian and, and, and professes Christ. And, and he was asked about what made America great in an interview. And he, and he said, what makes America great is the free enterprise system in the United States of America. Uh, capitalism within the United States of America. I'm all for the free enterprise system and capitalism in the United States of America. But that's not what makes us great. It's not what made us great, and it's not what makes any people great in the world. And I, and I thought that my, my heart just sunk related to that. Again, uh, it, 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 righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to, to any people. We also uh, uh, remember, as I, if I already mentioned here, uh, the fact that the improbability of the fulfillment of this, uh, this particular prophecy at the time. 
uh, Assyria is at the zenith of its power. The, the Babylonians are just a, a collection of tribes and groups of people at, at, this, at this time. And nobody would have thought that, that they would ever rise up and, and conquer the Assyrians, and, and yet they did. And the prophecy of Nahum concerning the destruction of Nineveh uh, uh, was so uh, thoroughly fulfilled that later when the armies of Alexander the Great uh, marched through that region, they were completely unaware that they were walking over the ruins of the city. And it reminds us that when we look at Matthew chapter 24 and 25, when we look at Revelation chapters uh, 6 through 19 in terms of what God has prophesied concerning the future uh, of this earth, everything having to do with the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, the abomination that causes desolation, all of those seals and trumpets and all of those bowls, but a new heaven and a new earth and a second coming of Christ and also a, a thousand year reign. All of those things are going to take place in human history as surely as the fall of, of uh, the, uh, Assyria and Nineveh uh, occurred. Again, I want to remind us of that, that passage in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where the Lord declares, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust Him. No matter how wicked the world gets, it still and always will pay for the righteous to be righteous, because God is discerning. Uh, in his judgment and in his chastening. And so Nahum really is uh, Jonah the sequel, uh, in a sense, and it teaches us that uh, also that no matter uh, what in the eyes of God, no, it doesn't matter what we were uh, a hundred years ago, so to speak, in the midst of a revival, uh, God turned in his, his judgment. He repented of it that He was going to bring upon Nineveh because they repented of their sin. But ultimately, judgment came a hundred years later because what matters is not what we were a hundred years ago or, or what we were as Christians ten years ago or a year ago or twenty years ago. All that really matters is what are we right now? And we can't look back on the old days and say, yeah, you know, I really walked a walk and talked a talk uh, back then, but now I'm nothing uh, like that, but I'm okay because of that history. It's not what we were that God is looking at presently in our lives. He's looking at what we are, and what they were, as God looks at them, is something that God was going to be forced to judge and to chasten, though they were something far greater earlier. And that's a good reminder to us as well. And it also reminds us that God wins. He always has, and He always will. And so this, great book, this book is a tremendous message of a warning to the wicked, but it is in that warning, it is just as strong, intended to be, just as strong an encouragement to the righteous. And so God is working all of this His way. And of course, always the judgment of the wicked is good news uh, for the righteous because it takes the wicked's kind of boot off of our uh, throat as the Assyrians had it upon uh, Judah's throat, so to speak, just looking at it uh, uh, naturally speaking. But an encouragement to the righteous that God prevails and an encouragement to the righteous in any age. If you sit here uh, this evening and... There was no football on television uh, or whatever brought you into church if you're not a Christian uh, yet, uh, but uh, here you are. And, uh, and, and why would you come into a church except you're looking for God, you're looking for the meaning of life, the purpose of life, hope within, within in your life, freedom to be released from bondage, whatever it, it, it might be. And the message for you this evening is that God loves you and He wants to save you. And He will save you when you, as you confess your sin to Him, repent of those sins, put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, 
and then become a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, we're going to be up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this evening. If you need prayer for anything in your life tonight, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for this, um, not an obscure book in your eyes, but uh, obscure to most people. And yet what a treasure is found in it and what a witness to the truth of your word and the fulfillment of your prophecies and uh, how you differentiate in your judgment and all of the things that are such a strong warning to the wicked, but such an equally strong encouragement to the righteous. Thank you for including it in your book, and thank you for the privilege of being able to study it together tonight, and to do so with one another, and to do so with you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Trinity, would you close us?